amen, friends. Here's what we're going to do. We are wrapping up our series this morning on politics in the church. Politics in the church. Uh, Praise the Lord, we are wrapping this puppy up. I am so ready to be done. In all seriousness, it's been good. It's been a good series. It's been a hard series to preach. It's been a hard series to sit through. Um, This morning is going to be just as intense as any of the mornings, maybe a little bit more intense. But it's been good for us. We kind of, we kind of raised our gaze uh, sometime at the beginning of this year or maybe the end of last year. We said, hey, what's coming for us? And we, we said, hey, this season, this time from in October is going to be an intense time for our nation. It's going to be an intense time for the church. And we want to lean into that. We, we need to set the tone for our hearts for the hearts of people who say, man, I love Jesus. Before we ever knew COVID was a thing, we knew, hey, this was going to be intense. And the hearts of the people who love Jesus need to be set on him above all other things. We cannot allow the craziness of this world to pull the church in. And over the past few weeks, we've been kind of unpacking this idea and showing it and kind of exposing how the church um, and how politics in particular has crept into the church and has brought division to the church. It's sold a false hope to the church. It's caused us to fix our eyes on how do we redeem America rather than how do we live as a redeemed people. And this morning what I want to do is I want to even take us kind of at a, from a higher level and, say, and show you how this is not a new thing. It's not a new thing. And it's not going away anytime soon. Trump and Biden did not create this. They didn't create this. Um, it, it's been around since the dawn of time nearly nearly since the dawn of time, and it will be around until the end of time. And so as the church, we we just need to kind of buckle up, settle in, and learn how to live now, learn how to live well now, and realize that there is constantly, always, always, always a war being waged for your formation. There's constantly, always, a war being waged for your formation. The, The culture of the day wants to form you. They want to grab your attention and say, here's how you should live. Here's how you should think. Here's how you should act. Here's what you should believe. And they're warring against the church. They're warring against your God. Um, At the beginning of COVID, back in March, uh, there was uh, some recent data, some data that came out in March that showed this unbelievable spike in the amount of screen times Americans have during the week, okay? The amount of time that the average American spends viewing a screen. And it spiked in March. It's been going up every year, I mean, which is, which is pretty normal. Pretty, I mean, clearly we would understand that. It goes up every single year. And then in March, when COVID hit, it spiked, right? Which also is pretty understandable, right? If you, if you lock people in their homes, what are they going to do all day, okay? But the amount of time, the amount of hours that the average American, average, okay? I'm not talking about the most extreme. I'm not talking about teenagers. I know you all want to blame on teenagers. I'm talking about adults. The average time that the average American adult spends viewing a screen per week. Any any guesses? Any guesses? 30 hours. Any other guesses? 60 hours. You're both too low. 90 hours. In March of 2020, it spiked to 90 hours, and it hasn't gone down. The average, I'm talking about average, average. I'm not talking about your teenage daughter. I'm talking about you. Average, 90 hours a week, 90 hours a week. That's 360 hours a month, 360 hours a month, average. Now, last week I talked about this idea that um, over the past few, over the past decade, the average 
person who, in America, the adult who says, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm in. I'm in. My life belongs to the King of Kings. Church attendance for that person is one to two times a month, which is one to two hours per month. One to two hours per month. That same person in March of 2020, their church attendance dropped dramatically. Churches right now, they say, if you have 50% of the attendance that you had in March, you're doing well. It means half the people aren't even here. Half the people who are the, half the average American Christians are not attending church anymore. So it's gone to, from one to two hours a month to zero. And so I, when, there, are days, there are days when I look at what is happening in our culture, this battle for formation, and I realize that the average American is spending 360 hours a month looking at a screen in one to two hours at best being formed by the church, doing what we've done this morning, singing the gospel over one another. I said a minute ago that, that, this, that this morning has reset my heart. It's, it's, re, it's realigned my loves, just hearing you sing the gospel over me. I, I can make it through another week knowing that, man, that my life is secure in Christ. Most followers of Jesus in our country don't have that right now. They're not doing that. They're not doing it. They're doing it at best once a month, maybe. Once a month. And since COVID, not at all. And so when I look at my job as, as what, the, what the Bible says, man, man I, I'm, to, I'm to guard and protect your soul. I'm, I'm to give care for your soul. The lead shepherds and the, and the ministers here on our staff at Flourishing Grace, that's our job. And I look at the stats and I'm like, what hope do you have? What hope do you have? And some of you might say, no, 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 Josh, that's not me. It doesn't describe me. I'm not on social media. I don't, I don't do the Facebooks and the Instagrams and the TikTok. I don't, I don't even know what that is, man. I don't, I don't have time for that. And I'm here every single week, and I'm in a small group. Okay, so let's say that's true. Let's drop the national average. Let's cut it in half. Let's cut it in half from 90 hours a week to 45 hours a week. That's still 180 hours a month. 180 hours a month. And if you're in here and in a small group for an hour a week here and an hour a week in your small group, okay, that's only eight hours a month. Just had to do the math. I went to seminary, okay? Eight hours a month. Eight versus 180. Who do you think is going to win for the formation of your soul? Who do you think is going to win? What's fascinating, what's fascinating is this is not a new idea. Again, I'll say it again, Trump and Biden didn't create this. It's been around since the dawn of time. And what I want to do today is I want to show you two major biblical themes. Um, There are several biblical themes that start in the very beginning in Genesis, and they run all the way through the Bible. Every follower of Jesus should know what those themes are. Because if you see it from Genesis to Revelation and a million places in between, That should cause us to say, what's going on here? What is God doing? What is God doing? Because this is not a human thing. This is clearly a God thing. And the two themes I want to focus in on today is the theme of Israel versus Babylon. Israel versus Babylon. These two ancient nations. This is a major biblical theme. It's literally found from beginning to end of the Bible. In many places, in between. It is not just a city and not just a nation, but a symbol of a spirit that exists in every culture at every moment in human history. Let me say that again. Israel, yes, a nation, a a literal nation of people that exist. Babylon, 
a literal nation of people that, that existed. But it's more than that. It's more than that. We see this throughout Scripture. It is a symbol of a spirit that exists in every culture at every moment of human history. We see it in the very beginning, Babylon. For those of you who grew up in church, you know the story. Or maybe you probably know the story even if you didn't grow up in church, right? The, the, the Tower of Babel, the people of Babel, right? They wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to become great. They wanted to build this tower so that they could be like the gods and that, that, that they would be this great people, right? So they build the Tower of Babel. We see this in Genesis in the very beginning. The very beginning of the Bible in Genesis, we see the story of the people of Babel. Those people would go on to become the Babylonians of the nation of Babylon. They would, they would rule the entire known world. This is a theme of Babylon that we see again and again and again. We're going to see this this morning. We're going to look at this and see this. That, men they want to be the greatest. They want to be the best. They want to be the biggest. They want to be the brightest. They want to be the most well-educated. They want to be the pinnacle of humanity. Babylon. It is in the air we breathe. But then there's Israel. We see Israel in Genesis as well. Genesis 12, right? When Abram is promised by God, from you I'm going to form a nation. Your descendants will be like the stars of the, stars of the sky, the sand on the seashore. And from you, from your family, from your line, will come one who will bless all the nations of the earth. A great nation with a great leader, a great king. And from that moment in Genesis, these two are opposed to each other. From Genesis all the way to Revelation. We see later that Babylon versus Jerusalem, Jerusalem being the great city of Israel, God's city. We see that the empire of Babylon conquered Jerusalem. Conquered Jerusalem. Babylon, the bad guy, wins temporarily. But for a moment, right, in our story, the bad guy wins. Babylon conquers Jerusalem. They march their army. They, they've conquered the entire known world. Okay, They march their army onto, onto Jerusalem. And the king of Jerusalem says, come on in. Like, I'm not, I'm not fighting. Like, you will, you will lay waste to our city. And so they come in and they plunder the city. What do they take? They, they take some, some wealth, some riches, some, some valuable things from the temple of God. And they take their kids. They steal their kids. But what do they do to the kids? They don't harm them. They don't, they don't make them work in some camp. They don't, they don't beat them. They take them back to Babylon, the great city. And they say, look how amazing it is. They give them the finest education and the finest housing and the finest food. And they say, Babylon is amazing. And you should love Babylon. It's this idea of indoctrinating the next generation. Let's get our kids to buy in. And then as their parents peacefully die out, their parents and their grandparents, because they're going to write home to mom and dad and say, you know what, mom? It's actually not that bad. It's not that bad. The culture of the day, that's the thing that's forming our culture, Babylon, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. Mom and dad, you should buy into this. And even though mom and dad will never really buy in, maybe they'll just peacefully die out. And then we can send that generation back home, and they'll live in Jerusalem, and they'll rule and reign that region of our empire, and they'll be friendly to Babylon because we've treated them well and we've indoctrinated them. We've taught them our culture of our day. This is what Babylon does, and they're good at it. They're good at it. And here's what God says to the nation of Israel, to these kids 
who are taken from their moms and their dads, these kids who are taken into this foreign land, taken away from their faith and away from their religion and forced to live in exile in this country. Here's how God calls them to live. This is a famous text from Jeremiah 29. We actually preached on this a few weeks ago um, when we were preaching through our continuing prayer series. But I want to read it for you this morning. It reads this way. Pick it up in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who, who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to their dreams that they dream. For it is a lie. They are prophesying. They are, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you the promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to, and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all of your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have sent you and driven you declares the Lord. I'll bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. When, when, when the culture of the day tries to indoctrinate these kids, the God of all things does not say, does not say, you need to rebel against that. You need to take back. You need to conquer. You need to own. You need to be the one in power. He didn't say that. He says three things. Live well there. Invest in that culture. Invest in that culture. Have kids. Grow in your influence. But make sure you're teaching those kids who their God is and how to live before their God. Invest well in the culture. Show up and engage. But number two, don't buy into the culture. Listen, the diviners and the, dream, the dreamers and, the, and, the, and, the, and the, the, prophet, the prophets, don't buy into it. It's not of me. Don't buy into the culture. You need to be in the world but not of the world. Sound familiar? God says, men, live well there, but don't buy in there. And then number three, number three, he says, don't take your eyes off of me. Fix your eyes on me. A day is coming that I'm coming back for you. Seventy years, he says, in 70 years, you keep praying, you keep asking, you focus, you focus on me, you fix your eyes on me. I'm coming back for you. I will answer your prayers. Seventy years, though. He says, some of you are going to grow old there. Some of you are going to die there. You're going to see your kids and your grandkids born. Like, you're not going to ever experience it. But you focus your eyes on me. You fix your eyes on me because I'm coming back. Live well there, but don't buy in. And never take your gaze off me because I'm coming back for you. Does any of this sound familiar? I said it's more than a city. It's a theme that we see throughout all of Scripture. But it doesn't end there, right? 
Things don't go well for Babylon. History tells us that Babylon falls in 539 B.C. 539 B.C. Um, the story in the Bible goes like this. And the story in history says this. It falls instantly. Overnight, Babylon falls. And the Bible describes the story this way. So King Nebuchadnezzar, he, he's gone. He's done. His son, Belshazzar. Everybody say Belshazzar. Is that fun? It's a little fun. Okay? I just want to make sure you're still with me. But it's fun. You can look at yourself in the mirror later and say, Belshazzar. It's kind of fun. Belshazzar is this, is this young, rich king ruler of Babylon. And Babylon, they're marked by this idea. They always want to be the greatest. They always want to be the best. There's nobody other. They're so, they're so self-centered and so prideful, so arrogant. They know they're the best. They've conquered the known world. So he throws this massive drunken rager, okay? He fills the court of the king with just debauchery upon debauchery. Sex, drugs, rock and roll. It is a wild, wild night in Belshazzar's court. And he's so hammered that he's like, let's go to the temple and let's get those golden vessels that my dad took from Israel, from the temple in, in Jerusalem. Let's bring them in here and let's drink out of those. And he, so he sends his frat boys off to go get the vessels from the temple. They bring them in, these holy vessels that they've stolen from the temple in Jerusalem. And they start getting even more drunk, drinking out of them. And God finally says, enough. And the hand of God writes on the wall of the court, mene mene tekel parison, and everybody in the place is like sees this happening. Like, what are we smoking? What is happening? And they freak out. He sends everybody out, and he can't sleep. He can't. He can't undo what has been done. He calls in all the sorcerers and the diviners, and and they they read the thing on the wall. And they're like, I don't know what that means. Nobody knows what it means. But I remember a guy. Your dad had a guy, Daniel. Daniel, he might know what that means. They call him Daniel. And Daniel's like, oh yeah, I know what that means. Mene, your days are numbered. Teko, you've been weighed in the balances and you've been found wanting. Parison, not just you, but your kingdom is going to come to an end now. And that very night, he is killed. King Belshazzar is killed. And the Medes and the Persians, Darius the Mede and the Persians, they take over Babylon, not just the city, but the entire nation. And the Persians become the rulers of the known world. God says, enough. And in an instant, in a moment, in a split second, Babylon is undone. Friends, this theme is carried throughout all of Scripture. It's happening today. Peter brings it into the New Testament. In 1 Peter 5, 13, he writes this, he says, She who is at Babylon, who is, like, who, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and, and so does Mark, my son. This, that line at the, end, at the end of 1 Peter has confused so many scholars because they're like, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Babylon's no longer. Babylon is a blip. It's a blip on the map. It's no, the Romans rule the known world at this point. They've defeated, the Greeks defeated the Persians, the, the Romans defeated the Greeks. The Romans rule the known world now. Peter's not in Babylon. Mark's not in Babylon. They're in Rome. What scholars believe is going on here is that Peter is kind of subvertly saying to his audience, he says, you, you, the church, you who are in exile, you who are being persecuted, you who have scattered throughout Rome, you are now the new Israel. You are God's chosen people. And Rome, Rome is the Babylon of our day. Rome is the Babylon of our day. 
fast forwarding to the end of Scripture. I said it's from the beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation. We see Babylon in Revelation, creepily, okay? But it's there. Um, Buckle up. Revelation 17 reads this way. Then one of the seven angels, who had seven bulls, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with with the wine whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with golden jewels and pearls, holding in her hand the golden cup of abominations and impurities, of sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Let's keep it down to verse 18. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Chapter 1 of 18. After this, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory. He called out in a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has, she, she has become the, a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast, for all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. The kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of earth have grown rich from her power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice saying from heaven, Come out of her, my people. Least you take part in her sins. Least you share in her plagues. For her sins are a heap as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for the deeds. Mix a double portion of her in the cup she has mixed. As she has glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a, me- a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as queen, I am no widow. And no mourning I shall ever see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine. And she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Here's what I want you to see. If you don't see anything else about all this Babylon, Israel stuff, here's what I want you to see. Babylon is not just a city. It's not just a nation, okay? It's a theme, It's a theme, and it's marked by this unbelievable pride and arrogance. I want to become the greatest from the the moment we see them in Genesis. I want to be the greatest. When you study the life of King Nebuchadnezzar, right, constantly, I want to build a statue of myself that is taller than the Statue of Liberty. He did that. He actually actually did that. I I am the greatest. What I have built, what I have achieved, what I have accomplished, accomplished is the greatest. To his son, Belshazzar, I can do anything I want. Nothing can stop me. I, listen, I do what I want. If I want to take the, these sacred cups and I want to drink out of them and I want to get drunk, listen, I do whatever I want. But it's also marked by a quick, quick wrath of God that brings it to an end. Both then and now. 
They're more than historical nations. The great ancient city of Babylon that once ruled the entire known world is nothing more than a speck on the map. All the nations that have ever embodied Babylon are gone. The Persians are gone. The Greeks are gone. The Romans are all gone. And Revelation clearly teaches us that on the day of Christ Jesus, all those who have embodied Babylon will suffer greatly and perish. These are major and important themes that that every follower of Jesus should say, hey, there's something there that should be important to us. There's always been and always will be until the very end of time at Babylon, a spirit of our day that that is warring against the Israel of our day. There will always be an Israel of our day. There will always be a Babylon of our day until God finally says, enough, you're done. And then all that will exist is Israel. The perfect rule and perfect reign of Christ. For the Jews in Nazi Germany, Germany was the Babylon of their day. For Peter, it was Rome. There will always be a Babylon of our day. It is in the air we breathe. It is any culture that leads people away from Jesus. It is the kingdom of Satan. That's what it is. The prince of the power of the air. It's his. And he's at work right now in the Babylon of our day. Now, what does any of this have to do with politics? You may or may not ask. Here's the deal. When it comes to politics, as I said, this has always been true. There is a way that nations are led to prosperity in a way that they're led to destruction. And there's often a blur in between these two things, but in the end, the outcome is always the same. Our nation's founders and our nation's great leaders have actually known this. They've actually looked at this theme and said, there's something to that. There's something more here, and we need to pay attention to that. George Washington in 1789 said it this way, the preposterous smiles of heaven the propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself ordained. Listen, if you want a nation that smiles and if you want heaven to smile upon your nation, you need to pay attention to, the, to, the, to, the, to the, how your people are living, that they, would, that they would obey the rules of heaven. George Washington understood that. He, understood, he, he grasped this idea. Calvin Coolidge in 1923 said this way, The founders of our society and our government rest so much, the foundations of our society and our government rest so much on the teachings of the Bible that it would be difficult to support them if faith in these teachings would cease to be practically universal in our country. Calvin Coolidge has meant if, if, if the teachings of the Bible were not universally accepted in our country, and they were, even by people who say, I don't believe in Jesus, they said, hey, there is value and worth there. There's value and worth there. And, 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 and we should live the way that Jesus calls us to live, even if I don't believe Jesus is king. There was a time when people actually believed that. And Calvin Coolidge says, if that goes away, so does our nation the foundations of our society and government. Theodore Roosevelt put it this way. He said, It is necessary for the welfare of the nation, for the welfare of the nation, that men's lives be based on the principles of the Bible. No man, educated or uneducated, can afford to be ignored of the Bible. Theodore Roosevelt says, Man, if we want our nation to flourish, if we want to see the welfare of our nation increase, our men need to know the word of God. That's insane. Trump's not going to say that. Biden's not going to say that. 
Franklin Roosevelt, sorry, Ben Franklin, Benjamin Franklin, who is who's no, not a follower of Jesus. Benjamin Franklin said it this way, a Bible and a newspaper in every house, a good school in every district, all studied and appreciated as they merit, are the principal support of virtue, morality, and civil liberty. Benjamin Franklin says, man, we need our people to know the Bible. We need them to know what's actually happening in the world around them, okay? What's actually being voted on in the halls of Congress. Not, not Fox News and CNN and all that garbage. No, we need them to know what's actually happening. They need to be informed, and they need to be well-educated. Those three things, that's the foundation. That's the foundation of virtue, morality, and civil liberty. We don't have any of those things anymore. Ronald Reagan said it this way, Without God there is no virtue because there is no prompting of the conscience. Without God there is a coercing of society. Without God, democracy will not and cannot long endure. If we ever forget that we are one nation under God, then we will be a nation gone under. Thomas Jefferson in 1771, I think it's a typo on there, 1771. I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever. Friends, so many of our nation's founders and leaders and even those who are not Christians have come to this conclusion again and again that the teachings of Jesus and the people who truly embody them, live them out. His church are essential to the health of our nation. And without these, this nation will fall. It used to be obvious. It was plain and simple. The church and people who actually valued the Bible were critical to the nation. Whether, whether they were believers in Jesus or not, people who valued the Bible were critical, critical to the health of our nation. Our founders and our leaders have seen there is a Babylon and there is an Israel. They've known this. Whether they understood this intellectually or not, whether they actually saw how it played out, doesn't matter. They could see there is a way to do this and there's a way not to do this. It's important that we get it right. I want to give you some bad news this morning and some good news. And the bad news is this. The bad news, friends, is that I believe that our nation's leaders on both sides of the aisle, Republicans and Democrats, on every level of government, local, state, and federal, and the majority of our nation don't believe this anymore at all. They, they, don't, they don't buy into it at all. There's no need for any morality. There's no need for Israel. Your morality is subjective. You should be who you want to be. And nobody else can tell you what that should be. Nobody else can tell you what you need to do or how you should act. You be you. That's what's most important. We've given up. There is no more right and wrong. And friends, America is as much a Babylon as Babylon. America is as much a Babylon as Babylon ever was. It's as much a Babylon as Rome, Persia, as much a Babylon as Greece. Dare I say it's as much a Babylon as Germany was. America is as much a Babylon as Babylon. For a very long time, for a very long time, many Americans have looked upon America as God's beloved nation. This has been a doctrine in our country that has been taught by politicians of old that, that America is God's nation, more so than other nations. Preachers used to preach, and some still do, that America is a type of Israel, not Babylon. That was never true, nor will it ever be true. America is not Israel. 
There may have been a time when God was America's God, but there's never been a time when America was God's nation. There may have been a time when God was actually America's God, when, when, when our people and our nation said, yes, yes, there is, there is good and there's evil. There's a God and there's no God. There, there may have been a time when God was America's God, but there's never been a time when America was God's nation. It's never been. We are not a type of Israel. America is not anyways. I do not believe it gets better for America anytime soon. There are serious negative ramifications for our country on November 3rd or December 3rd or January 3rd or whenever the heck we get some votes counted around here. For me, there is more to mourn than there is to celebrate no matter who wins this election. Frankly, our nation has become so polarized that there will be outrage, anger, malice, and perhaps great violence no matter who wins or who loses. These are things that the church should mourn, not celebrate. In many ways, November 4th will be a day of mourning for those who love Jesus and who have chosen to be politically homeless in this world. Friends, what I want you to see is that the time is coming. Just as God said to the people who are, the literal people who are in it, who were who who sojourners, exiles in a literal Babylon, the time is coming when your prayers will be answered and I will come back for you. The time is coming when God will say, enough. Enough of your arrogance. It, 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 enough. And it will be over for Babylon. Babylon comes to an end. Again and again and again in this life and the next. It will be snuffed out. But the good news is, there is another kingdom. There's another kingdom that runs throughout the entire theme of Scripture from beginning to end. It's a kingdom not of America, but of God's people. Not of this nation, but of every tribe, every tongue, in every nation. There are people, God's people, there. They are scattered throughout the world. They are the sojourners in the exiles of our day. And they know this, this sweet, sweet, sweet truth. This is not our home. They're, they're, they are in China. They are in India. They are in Europe. They are in Russia. They are in Afghanistan. They are in uh, South America and in North America. And they know this. No matter where they are, this is not our home. This is not my home. And no matter who wins next week, Trump or Biden, they are not my king. There is only one eternal king, and his name is Jesus. And what I want to do with the rest of our time, we're running out of time, what I want to do with the rest of our time is tell you about my king, and hopefully your king. I know not everybody in here is actually a follower of Jesus. I know not everybody watching online is a follower of Jesus, but there is a greater king and a greater kingdom, and you can choose to be a part of it. You can be a part of this. You can have him as your king. Isaiah 9 67, Isaiah writes this in describing our king. For unto us a child is born. For unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Fix your eyes on him. He will do it. 
Don't take your gaze off it. Don't look at this world. This is not your home. He will do it. That, that text, that verse describes no politician ever. No king, no ruler, no leader who has ever lived or ever will live is described right there. Except for one. Jesus. Jesus is our wonderful counselor. He is our mighty God. He is our everlasting father. He is our prince of peace. And the government will be upon his shoulders. The king of kings. The king of kings who has gone to the cross to secure his kingdom. A day is coming. A day is coming when he will hand the keys of the kingdom back over to the father. And for those who have endured, the sojourners and the exiles, who have said, that's my king. And I will not take my gaze off my king. I I will not drink the luxury of Babylon. I will not engage in the sin of Babylon. That's my king. That's my home. He's coming for us. He's coming for us. He's going to say, enjoy the kingdom. It's all for you. It's all for you. The sweet news is this. We did not elect Jesus. It's not a democracy. You don't get to pick him. If you did, you would have jacked it up, and so would have I. We'd have, we'd have chosen the worst person, okay? But we didn't get to pick it. He elected you. Paul writes it in Ephesians 1 this way, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of the glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. We did not elect Jesus. He elected us. This world is not our home because we've been called out of it. Therefore, we are freed to live for him in it. Knowing that this world is not my home frees me to live fully for Jesus in this world as a sojourner, as an exile, as one who is stuck here for a limited season, knowing that there's an end. I can live well. I can live for the good of my nation without ever getting wrapped up in it. Because of Jesus' completed work on the cross, our kingdom is not affected in the least next week. Our kingdom The kingdom of Christ, because Christ has gone to the cross to secure the kingdom, who has broken the curse of sin and death. He has secured the kingdom. He is the king of kings. As John the Baptist says in Matthew, he says, listen, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. Repent and believe in the good news. It's here. The kingdom of heaven is here. This idea uh, that that is both a literal place where we will live forevermore. In a spirit of our air, it is here now. And nothing, nothing that happens next week or the next week or the next week or the next week, no outcome of any vote ever in this world will ever change that. The kingdom of heaven will not even feel the slightest puff of wind next week. Nothing, nothing because of Jesus' completed work on the cross. Because of Jesus' completed work on the cross, our standing in our eternal home will not be changed in any way next week. For those of you who are in Christ, you've said, he is my king and this is not my home. Nothing that happens next week, nothing that happens ever in this world will change that. You are secure. Your eternity is secure in him because he's purchased you. He's elected you. You didn't elect him. 
before the foundations of the earth. He said, you, I'm going to call you out of this. I'm going to lead you home. Fix your gaze on me. Do not look to this world to solve your problems. It's not going to. Don't look to this world to, to make your life better. It's not going to. And if you drink the prosperity of the land, if you are wooed by the Babylon of your day, it does not end well for you. But because of his completed work on the cross, we can fix our gaze on him knowing that our eternal home will not be changed in any way. Because of Jesus' completed work on the cross, he now sits at the right hand of God the Father as king and conqueror, and nothing that happens next week will change that. You cannot dethrone him. Of his kingdom there will be no end, but he will not be king forever. Do you know that, right? The day is coming when he's going to call us home. And he's going to hand the keys of the kingdom over to his father. And he's going to say, it's finished. And it's yours. He, he is now the ruler of all things. And it belongs to you. It's, it, you. You are to share in my glory. It's yours. It's yours. Enjoy it. Delight in it forever. Perfect rule. Perfect reign forever. And nothing that happens will change that. Nothing that happens will change that. And so as the church, we should not be people who are caught up in anxiety and worry and panic about COVID and about government and about politics and about Democrats and Republicans. And, and we should not be consumed with what's happening next week. Should we be invested? Yes. Yes. For the good and the welfare of our communities, for the good and the welfare of our nation. But that's not our hope. So I want to ask you this morning. Have you submitted your life fully to his perfect rule and reign. Can you say with absolute certainty that your eternal home is secure? Can you say that? I have relinquished my grasp on all things in this Babylonian age. I, I don't care. I don't need wealth. I don't need success. I don't need fame. I don't need the government to protect me. If the worst of the worst should happen, and America is overthrown, and I'm forced into some work camp, it's all fun. Listen, my eternity is secure in Christ. Nothing changes. Not, not, even, not even the slightest trimble. It is a kingdom that is unshakable. The author of Hebrews tells us. Can you say that? Do you rest in that? Do you sleep well at night? Is that true of you? Friends, if not, I want to implore to you this morning, I want to beg you to throw yourself upon his mercy and grace. To renounce your allegiance to anything else. It's a point of contention in our house. I say it all the time. I don't pledge allegiance to the United States of America. And I don't want my kids to either. I pledge allegiance to Christ alone. That's it. He's the only one. I love America. I know who I'm cheering for when the Olympics comes around. But this is not my home. And my allegiance doesn't lie here. It lies before the King of Kings in my eternal home. I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm not a citizen of the United States. This is temporary. Can you say that? For those of you who say, yes, that's true of me. I've given my life to Christ. I belong to him. Are you living that way? Are you living that way? Would the rest of the world look in on your life and say, yes, that it, that's true of you? By your actions, are you declaring to the world around you that your hope is not in this world, in these politics, or in this election? Or are you banging the drum on social media? Have you put the sign in your front yard declaring the glory of a man rather than the glory of your God? I've said it over the past three weeks. Politics is creeping into the church and it's dividing us. It's alluring us with a false hope. 
It's calling us to to be a people who focus on redeeming a broken nation that will never be redeemed rather than living as a redeemed people in Christ. And yet we've bought in. We've bought in. I believe to put the name of a man that you think is going to bring hope, any any name other than Jesus, it's just sinful, man. It's, It's broken. It's broken. To say there's hope in this man's name. I don't care who it is. I don't care who it is. There's hope in no other name other than Jesus alone. And so my, my, my challenge to you would say, man, I'm in. I'm a follower of Jesus. If you're brand new here, you're like, I don't know if that's me. Listen, I'm not talking to you. For those who would say, man, I'm in. Act like it. Worship him alone. Submit to him alone. Stop pandering to the world around us that is not our home. My prayer is that you would allow the brokenness of our nation that is only going to get worse to fix your gaze more on Christ. That's been my hope since the beginning of the series. And that's my hope this morning. If not, you will become conformed to this world. You'll drink of the Babylon of our day. As we've seen this morning, it does not end well for you. It does not end well for you. So let us be a people who fix our gaze on Christ and Christ alone and nothing else. Here's what we're going to do this morning, friends. In a moment, we're going to receive communion together. If you didn't get a cup on your way in, Brett's going to play a song in a minute. You can, run, you can go back there and you can, you can grab one of those cups, okay, and bring it to your seat. I'll come back up in a minute and we're going to receive communion. But let me say this. When we are baptized into Christ, not into some organization, not into some church, no, we are baptized into Christ, this is not a church thing. It is, it is, it is absolutely this marking off to say, I belong to Jesus. He has purchased me. He has redeemed me. I am his. This is not my home. Heaven is my home. We're marked off in baptism. Communion is a reminder of what it cost our king and our God to purchase us. So if you cannot say with certainty, I do not buy into the Babylon of my day, then don't participate. This is for those of us who say, Christ is my king, and this is not my home. My allegiance is pledged to him. In a minute, I'll come back up, and we'll receive communion together this morning. During this time, while we sing and declare that over one another, you can go back and you can grab uh, the cup um, now. Let's stand and sing together. Mm -hmm.